Hi everyone and welcome to church. Today we're starting a new series called It's Personal. This series is going to bring us through all the way through uh, the Easter story and Jesus's death, resurrection, and even the time before and immediately after that, following through that whole progression. Uh, and so we're super excited to talk about that. And today we're going to be talking specifically about how our personal relationship with a king. So today is called My King. So if you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21, we're going to read there today. And we're just going to start in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 21. And it says this, now, when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. So the disciples went and did as Jesus commanded them. They brought the donkey and the colt, laid their clothes on them, and set him on them. And a very great multitude spread their clothes on the road. Others cut down branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved, saying, Who is this? So the multitudes said, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you have come Long ago, you came and you entered into Jerusalem as a king for us to glorify and worship. And Lord, even though it didn't happen like many people thought it would, we thank you that your plans, your purpose behind this was so much more than we ever could have hoped or dreamed. We thank you for that. And Lord, today we ask that you would speak to us through your word, that we would enjoy your presence and that we would enjoy learning more about how we can be more like you, as well as how we can respect you and glorify you as our personal king. We love you and we thank you in your name. Amen. So we're going to be taking a look today specifically on how Jesus is our king. But before we do that, I kind of want to look at some of the prophecies concerning this very passage because there were prophecies that talked about specifically Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Um, Zechariah 9.9 is specifically quoted in this passage in Matthew in chapter 21, but it refers to actually another prophecy that was made concerning this day 490 years previous to and that is in Daniel chapter 9. So if you turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 9, we're actually going to read that section of Scripture. And specifically, it's chapter 9, verses 24 to 27. And we're just going to read those really quickly. It says this, Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Now that, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. And after the sixty-two weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, 
And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So some of these things are pretty wordy and confusing, especially if you don't do a lot of eschatology or prophecy study. But basically we have here in Daniel, he outlines 70 weeks of years, literally 70 sevens or 490 years that would determine the coming of the Messiah and the future of the tribulation. He predicted a declaration to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, which was fulfilled by Artaxerxes in 445 BC, and that 69 weeks of years after that declaration, the Messiah would come. This translates to, not not roughly, exactly 173,880 days from the declaration to the coming of the Messiah. Uh, once the different calendars are taken into consideration and once all of the math is, plays out, then you actually look at 173,880 days from the declaration of Artaxerxes. It calculates to April 6th, 32 AD, which is the day, the exact day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on this donkey. So this was predicted to the day when Jesus would actually ride into Jerusalem on a donkey. And we see how amazing these prediction becomes in lieu of Matthew 21, where we see Jesus coming in and all of the multitudes praising him and rejoicing him and ushering him in as the, as the king or as their king. He not only predicts Jesus' entry into Jerusalem to the day, but also Daniel alludes to the fact that he would bring a cleansing of sins and offer forgiveness by the cutting off of the Messiah. Now, we're not going to talk about that a lot this week, but I promise you that in the future we will talk about that plenty. But we see this idea that we, we see Jesus being put on a cross. We see the prediction of him being cut off from the people. And, and really it's, it's a week, less than a week, after this triumphal entry, as many of us call it here in Matthew 21. We see this triumphal entry and less than a week later, the same person that they have declared to be their king is being crucified on a cross. And see, the people had an expectation of Jesus because he was to usher in a new regime, a new era of victory for Israel. He was supposed to come in guns blazing and he was going to deal with all of their enemies and all of the people that had put them into bondage and slavery. And that was the expectation of Jesus or or of the people on Jesus is that he would come in and that he would deal with all of the mess and all of the problems and, and that he would usher in a new era of, of really Jewish uh, predominance in the world and that the Roman government would be toppled and that he would topple that government. And, and they had, you know, they had hope in that. And, and so Jesus was what they saw to be the answer to these problems. But we see a little bit of a different story with Jesus coming in because we see his humility in this entry. So see, see though, though the people had the expectation of a king that would rule by fire and judgment and, and justice of their enemies, God's thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways, as we know very clear, clearly often. Uh, 
Jesus is the prime example of humility in this, in that he, he tells his disciples that he did not come to be served, but to serve. And that we find that in chapter 20 of Matthew, actually. He reached out to the tax collectors and the lepers, the outcast and the downtrodden. He reached out to these people because these were the people that were lost. These were the people that needed healing. These were the people who needed a savior. And so he came specifically to those people to reach out to those people. He chose to enter into, into Jerusalem on this day, not on a horse as a warrior that goes to battle, or as a king coming and proclaiming victory over the enemy, but on a donkey. A king deserves a stallion, but our king chose the humble form of transportation as yet another example of what it means to die to yourself and to glorify God. And you see, Jesus' purpose was not to glorify himself in this moment. The people's purpose was to glorify Jesus. The people desired to glorify him, and that's not wrong in and of itself, but Jesus' desire was to glorify the Father, and he knew that there was something coming that was much more important than just this immediate ascension to a throne, an earthly throne, that would satisfy the, the hurt that the Jewish people had experienced for so long. There was something greater to be done. And the people probably noticed the fact that he was riding a donkey, that he wasn't riding a horse. They probably noticed the fact that he was humbly riding into town. But that didn't stop them from singing praises to their king. It didn't stop them from glorifying Jesus. He's just a weird duck. That's kind of how Jesus is. He's always been a little bit out there. But they didn't question it too much because, again, they had the expectation and they felt that this was the day. You see, this was the day that they were waiting for, for years. This was the day when God was finally going to free them from all the oppression and glorify them in the eyes of the world, bring them up, lift them above all of their oppressors. And you see, that was their hope, is that one day we will be brought up and God will bring us up. It was a day that they had waited for for a very long time, but God, as so often does, had a different plan in his mind of what was going to happen. He was not going to come in and kill all the Romans and people groups that were against the Jews. He was going to offer them forgiveness and life everlasting if they accept his son. You see, we don't understand that. We don't understand that line of thinking because we think immediately we need certain politicians in, in charge or we need certain rules to be in place and, and allow us to contain our freedoms and contain our, contain our uh, easy way of life, which again is not a bad thing. A peaceful life is, is one to be desired, to be sure. But God has a different plan here. And his ways are not our ways, and we need to remember that. And this reminds us of the story of Jonah. <clears throat> you see, there are similarities for sure between this story and the story of Jonah, because in the people, they wanted God to rain down fire on the Romans. They wanted him to be done with those people 
so that they could be lifted up. And we see Jonah in the same way. When he goes to Nineveh, he, he reluctantly, after much coercion, gives the gospel or gives the good news to the people of Nineveh. And then he camps outside of the city and he says, God, I did my part. Now you do yours and wipe them off the face of the earth. And he, he doesn't have that grace. He doesn't have that forgiveness. And so we see the similarity between this story and the story of Jonah where Christ didn't do what the people expected. What, what they wanted him to do, what they expected him to do, he didn't do that. And that became problematic. And that's why we see such a vast turn of events in the next week for his life. And so it leads us to a question that we have to ask. And, and it's the main crux of this message, which is, who is the king? Because as we see in Matthew chapter 20, 21, in verse 5, again, quoting the prophet Zechariah, it says, Tell the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then later in, in uh, verse 9, it says, Then the multitudes who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then when people were asking, who is this? The, the multitude said in verse 11, this is Jesus, the prophet from, the, from Nazareth of Galilee. They were proclaiming him. He was coming in and they were proclaiming him as their king. But there's an interesting thing that we see where we can relate to more often than not, I feel. Because after this event, we see Jesus start to interact with the people throughout this week leading up to Passover. And he's interacting with the Pharisees. And he says things like, uh, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Not, I'm here to topple Caesar. But yeah, pay Caesar taxes. He, he talks about submitting and serving and, and giving of our time, not taking over the Roman government and toppling the government and establishing a new world order or a new era of, of holy living. He doesn't talk about those things. He doesn't talk about ultimate justice. He talks about ultimate forgiveness. And in the eyes of the people, Jesus was not doing what he was supposed to be doing. He was not doing the things that they demanded. He wasn't obeying their commands. He wasn't doing what they wished him to do. Ultimately, he wasn't acting like the king that they wanted him to be. And so they no longer treated him as a king. And see, we do the same thing in our lives because this, this breaks apart the very definition of what it means to be king or lord. Using those words, we often use them in the Christian vernacular as, I mean, they're just interchangeable, King and Lord, and we call Jesus King and we call Him Lord, we pray to our Lord, all these things. But if Jesus was truly their King, their Lord, then they forfeit their rights. They forfeit their claims to have their desires met. They forfeit their very lives because He is the King. If he is the king, he must be the king in every aspect of our lives and their lives. And not only the areas that we want him to be king, but even the areas that we don't want him to be king or that we are trying to hold back from him. We have a tendency to call him king, but then as, as Peter said, not so, Lord. 
and and it's an interesting statement when Peter says that Peter Jesus is talking about you know his denial and and his death and things like that and Peter's like no no that, that'll never be me and it's like well by definition you're not allowing him to be king like he tells you what your marching orders are you don't tell him no you when you when you pledged your your life to a king to a nation they're giving their you're giving your entire life to that king and his purposes that king and his desires that king and his calling on your life your opinions no longer matter though they may be heard and they may even be taken into account they no longer matter ultimately their freedoms are given up willingly they become what we call a bond servant and this idea of bond servant is is a person that is giving their entire life as a slave i am going to be your slave i am going to do what you ask me to do nothing else that king's purposes his will and glory become everything to the servant the servant is concerned only with what the king desires this is in stark contrast from what is from what many believe Jesus is for us even today. You see we we feel like Jesus is there to grant us wishes or to listen to our prayers and and give us what we want and make our lives comfortable. He is not our personal genie. But because we have said a prayer at one point in our lives or because we have graced him with our presence in a church service or because we have even maybe served in the church, oftentimes we think that he owes us something. Let's be very clear. Jesus owes us nothing at all. We deserve death and judgment and punishment. He has given us the free gift of salvation, and it's out of his goodness that he does that. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and we see that over the next few weeks we will see how he humbly came to show us that we serve a loving king that cares about us personally and doesn't break us with pressure to be something that we cannot be. You see, it's not about him giving us what we want. It's also not about us being under the thumb. It's our free choice to go and to allow him to work in our lives and we have that choice of whether or not we want to pledge our lives to Jesus Christ. Now, he definitely has a say in that choice. But we are to give our lives wholly over to him. Not just parts of it, not just bits of it, not just the things that we want to give, but all of it. And so, as he's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey... This was the very beginning of the end of Jesus' time here on earth. At least physically. In a week or less, he will have been hung on a cross for crimes he did not commit to forgive sins that he also did not commit. He was a constant example of what it means to live a humble life and also the perfect example of how great a king he is to us. And so we have to ask ourselves very important questions. Is he Lord of your life? Does he command you where to go? Does he show you the path that you should go? 
or do you make those decisions on your own? Does he convict you of things? Does he change your opinion on things? Does his word live in you and work in you and change you? And as Romans says, are you being transformed by him? Or are you trying to shove him into a box and make him into your genie and make him into something that you desire him to be? Because those are oftentimes how we treat Jesus. It is oftentimes how we treat God that he owes us something. But it's not about us. It's not about you. It's not about me. It is about glorifying Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, who forgave our sins through death on a cross. That is our very purpose in this life. And anything outside of that is complete icing on the cake, if that's how you want to put it. We are blessed to be given that opportunity. We are blessed to be given the breath in our lungs, to praise him, to give him glory, to say Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And to usher him into our own lives as a true king, as a true Lord. Don't say to yourself, not so, Lord. Don't let it be, Jesus, because he commands you. He tells you where to go. He is the king. And that is a personal thing that we have to go through and we have to understand as Christian believers. It's a beautiful thing. If you are not a Christian, let me encourage you. It is a beautiful thing to know that Jesus Christ loves me so much that he wouldn't leave me in my sin. And that I can have now purpose behind my life, which is giving him glory, giving him praise, shouting his name because of how grateful and thankful I am. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much that you entered into Jerusalem. And Lord, we thank you for the prophecy concerning like literally to the day, how cool it is that we see that you entered into Jerusalem. But also, Lord, how much more cool it is that you chose to do that for sinners. You chose to do that for people who were at, at war with you. We thank you that, you that you did this. We thank you that you are capable of being our king. And Lord, there is no better king to follow than you. And so Father, we just ask today that you would help us to follow you more passionately, that we would pursue you and your glory, and that we wouldn't make this life about us, but that we would glorify you and your name. We love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.